Younger voters and President Biden. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Good to have you with us. Uh, younger voters, millennials, and Generation Z, if you combine them, they are the largest voting bloc in US history with 65 million eligible voters. However, their enthusiasm for President Biden in general and for the Democrats in particular seems to be a problem. Here to talk about all of this is Christina Tsinsun Ramirez. She is the president and executive director of Next Gen America. Uh, Christina, um, first of all, Joe Biden, I mean, youth turnout was huge in 2020, in part because of Joe Biden's agenda and the desire to get rid of Donald Trump. What happened? Well, I mean, Joe Biden was never really popular with young voters. The truth is that young voters are overwhelmingly progressive, but they are not for the Democratic Party or any one politician. They're about progressive policy. And so Biden said he was going to cancel student debt. Millions of young people went and voted for him to cancel student debt. And they also went and voted to defeat fascism and Donald Trump on the agenda. So, you know, Democrats need to understand that demographics are not destiny, that young people will turn out, but it's about also pushing forward progressive policies. And what we saw happen across the country last night in primaries, especially in North Carolina and Pennsylvania and other states is that progressive candidates are winning. Um, and that's because of the issues they stand for that are really, really popular with a broad base of the electorate, especially young people. And it seemed like Joe Biden stood for erasing some level of student debt. That was one of the things that he campaigned on in 2020. Now he says he's sort of thinking about it, but is ruling out anything like $50,000. How crucial is this issue to younger voters? I mean, not every single young person has student debt, but millions of people do. You know, and millions of people have held off on doing basic things like buying a house deciding whether they're gonna have kids or just making basic economic decisions about their future because of student debt. It's a mortgage on the mind for millions of people. And so canceling student debt is a crucial thing that the, the Biden administration needs to do for keeping its campaign promises and also for millions of young people that need that economic relief. And it will ultimately help Democrats win if they cancel student debt. And never mind the policy in terms of politics, it seems like a no brainer for the Biden administration to certainly do this well before the 2022 midterms. What do you sense or what do you hear is holding them back? Well, I think that there's internal debate. You know, some people believe, want to tell Biden, the Biden administration, they can't cancel student debt. We know it's within his power to do so. Um, we're all pushing, we're part of a national coalition of groups that are pushing and the millions of young people that we help mobilize are also pushing and, and demanding that the Biden administration cancel student debt. We also have to remember that Republicans, even just a few weeks ago when Biden said he was considering moving forward on canceling student debt, already said they wanted to push forward legislation blocking, legally blocking his ability to cancel student debt. So we also have to remember why this election is so important that ultimately we do need to push the Biden administration, but Republicans are ascendant in this moment right now, whether we're talking about Roe v. Wade um, or uh, on economic policies and just even seeing the brutal mass murder that we saw in Buffalo with the great re uh, replacement theory that we need to go out and vote because it's about stopping this ultra right wing extremist agenda and pushing forward on the progressive policies that young people want. We often hear that progressive policies when younger voters in particular are polled on them, it is very inspiring and energizing to them. The Biden administration of course has seemed to be sort of holding its fire in terms of progressive policies and not going as far as a lot of people had anticipated they would. What else though, do you think there are other things that explain the sort of malaise that a lot of people feel right now about Joe Biden? 
I mean, the truth is that, you know, when you look around, I think we did defeat fascism and that is no small feat that we defeated at least in 2020. And we're gonna have to do it again and again because the ultra right wing is not going home. They're continuing to fight. And if Roe v. Wade teaches us anything is that they will come and come decade after decade to usurp the power of the American people, especially a young diverse electorate that looks very different than the Republican Party. Um, but Democrats have, we pushed the party. Remember just a few years ago, it was not front and center in the Democratic Party to talk about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. It was not front and center to talk about the power of unions. It was not front and center to defend the right to abortion in the way that it is now. But ultimately, uh, Joe Biden has to do a lot more to deliver for young people and that uh, Democrats need to actually deliver on progressive policy. And it's really difficult for millions of young people that don't watch everything that's happening. And it's frustrating to see that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, two very moderates, almost Republicans have blocked progress on these core issues that young people care about. But you know, for me, I know that we have to defeat uh, the Republican right wing agenda that doesn't care about the working class, that doesn't care about the rights of women, that doesn't care about the rights of the LGBTQ community and people of color. Um, but it's not enough just to elect de Democrats. We have to push them to actually deliver on progressive policy. And delivering on those policies can take time, even in sort of the best of circumstances. Here, you have a, one of the two major political parties in the United States, which seems, I don't want to say dysfunctional, but seems like it is so lacking in sort of any basic integrity or shame. And I wonder how much of that then. And, and the fact that Joe Biden still has to deal with Republicans, does that perhaps turn off younger voters who think that the entire system is therefore just corrupt? I mean, the truth is like I've been an organizer for 20 years. I spent years organizing undocumented immigrant workers. I spent years organizing young people and working moms. And as an organizer, you're about where you can push and make the greatest leverage points. There is no pushing Republicans. They have no interest in an agenda that young people, young progressives care about. Democrats can be pushed, but we've got to push them. Um, and ultimately, there are the party has moved in the right direction, but it took millions of young people and insurgent progressive candidates like Bernie Sanders running to get us to a place where the Democratic Party is saying, there shouldn't just be a minimum wage, but there should be a living wage. That we should be talking about legalizing marijuana across the country. That we should be talking about racial justice as a core component of any Democratic agenda. John Fetterman seems to fit some of that bill. He won the Democratic primary for Senate in Pennsylvania last night. Um, and he's in, he's in favor of decriminalizing a marijuana, strong support of LGBTQ rights. In fact, I think he officiated over marriage of long before sort of fashionable for Democrats to do so. A clear progressive, um, is that the sort? And he's certainly outside the box in terms of how he looks. He looks like he's a member of the Adams family as opposed to a member of any sort of political establishment. Uh, is that the sort of thing that younger people are looking for? That sort of authenticity. Yeah, I think people just want someone that's real, right? It feels like so many times in politics, you get cookie cutters of what people think is electable versus what actually people want to hear. And we have a real problem with American politics, which is many elected officials answer to donors instead of the American people. And what we have to remember is ultimately, especially as young people, that we represent the largest, most diverse and most progressive voting bloc in the country. I always say as an organizer that Voting isn't the most important thing we can do, but it is the most basic thing we must do. That it is one of the cool, the 
crucial tools we have to hold people accountable. And we go out and do that and we still go out and protest and we still go out and organize other people and in, in our communities. But ultimately the right wing wants to see us stay home and not use that power. So let's flex that power and vote and not just vote for a Democrat and hope they do well, but do what they did in Pennsylvania. Go out and vote and vote for a Democrat that you believe is actually gonna deliver real policy change for you. A few of the younger voters that I've spoken with recently, they and they explain their sort of disengagement from politics, even sort of civic action by saying, look, you know, we are incinerating our planet. Our political leaders of both parties are doing nothing. We're doomed anyway, so why bother? What are you saying to people like that? Well, I, you know, what gives me hope is actually the millions of young people that are organizing and mobilizing around issues like climate change. I think we have to remember that the arc of history is long and that it does bend towards justice but we have to be the ones to bend it. That we have to organize, mobilize and vote to deal with these big issues. And every time our country has had the courage or imagination to tackle big issues, it's taken the power of young people to reject the status quo and say, we're not just gonna make changes and modifications on the margins. We're gonna disrupt the entire system to make sure it works for ordinary people. And our country desperately needs that courage again in this moment. The, the political headwinds certainly seem to be against Democrats. A lot of the polling suggests that Democrats are gonna get walloped in the 2022 midterms. But there's also every indication that Donald Trump is gonna run for president again. If he's the Republican nominee, does that by essentially de facto make younger voters more engaged, more enthusiastic about participating in 2024? I mean, you had record breaking turnout of young people in 2020, um, the highest youth voter turnout in American history, and they went to go defeat fascism and the ultra right wing agenda. And that ultra right wing agenda is on the ballot, not just in 2024 when Trump is on, it's on now. Whether it's Roe v. Wade, uh, the don't say gay campaigns, trying to not let us talk about racism with critical race theory in this country um, and the attack on immigrants. What we saw happen in Buffalo where 10 black Americans lost their lives is an exact and direct line from the right wing insurgent extremist agenda we see happening, whether it's Tucker Carlson or a mass murder like we saw in Buffalo. This is the consequence of fascism in 2022 and in 2024. And Christine, I'm just curious, when uh, when your organization or others band together and lobby the White House on some of these issues, uh, what's been the response from either President Biden or his, his top aides? You know, for me, what's clear as an organizer at NextGen, we worked to elect Joe Biden because we realized what was at stake against Trump. Um, but it wasn't just about getting him elected, it's been about pushing him on student debt, pushing him on immigration policy. We've gotten the Biden administration to a place where they say they're going to move forward on student debt, we have to keep pushing. We've gotten them to say they're going to rescind Title 22, which is also a great replacement theory. and when immigration policy in this country is dictated by the likes of Tucker Carlson that tries to bully us into anti-immigration policy. So we've pushed the Biden administration and we need to keep pushing to, to ultimately win. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like the Biden administration is saying the right things, but I get the sense that younger voters in particular, they want action, they want to actually see some concrete results. Uh, Christina Tinsoon Ramirez, she's the president and executive director of Next Gen America. Uh, Christina, thanks for being on the program and good luck to you. Thanks so much. Got it. The labor movement and workers' rights. Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. If you, like me, are interested in things like the labor movement and because it's summertime, you want a really good book to read. Well, there's a great one that is now out. It is called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. It was written by 
uh, independent labor journalist Kim Kelly. And Kim joins us now. Kim, first of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I can't believe it's out there in the world. It's in bookstores, it's in libraries. They let me get away with it. <laughs> so you you tell sort of the great you know successes of uh, the fight for workers' rights uh, and organized labor. And and how would you how would you list them? Or what are some of your favorites that came out of this book? Oh boy, there. Well, there's a lot of wins. There's a lot of losses, such as the story of the labor movement. But what it, some of my favorite like strikes and struggles to write about were the ones that were firsts. Like for example, in 1824, young women in Pawtucket, Rhode Island led the nation's first factory strike. And that totally kind of flies in the face of these mainstream ideas of who workers are, who unions are. Young women were out there on the picket lines hundreds of years in the past, and they're still out here now. Um, I loved writing about the great sugar strike of 1946 in Hawaii, which saw a big multiracial, multiethnic coalition of workers take on sugar plantation bosses and win. Just showing the you know the strength of multiracial solidarity and organizing across linguistic and ethnic lines. There's really a million of them, and I don't want to go on and on, so I'll stop for now. Well, we don't want to give away the book, but it seems yeah. like there are also some lessons here about people putting aside whatever sort of different ethnicity, nationality, language, a culture, and essentially realizing that they have common ground in terms of what they're looking for in terms of workers' rights. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's always there's more of us than there are of them. And we're always stronger together. Solidarity is always our greatest weapon, whether they're sugarcane plantation workers in the 40s in Hawaii or Amazon workers in Staten Island right now, or the workers leading the Starbucks Union drive across the country. It's always been the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most disenfranchised workers who've had to fight the hardest and who have fought the hardest to claw and scrape every little inch of progress we've ever had in this country. You mentioned Amazon and Starbucks and the effort for union workers there. How are the, how is that battle similar from you know the the classic ones in history, and how is it different? So the thing about the Amazon labor union that I think is so cool and so fascinating is the fact that they're doing it independently. They threw out the playbook, the established idea of what you should do, how you should form a union, and they did it themselves, and it worked. And there are so many precedents for that approach throughout history, specifically led by workers who have been kind of left out or disenfranchised or discriminated against. Like the work that Derek Palmer and Christian Smalls and Angelica, all of those workers who are part of the organizing committee in Staten Island, they're, they're building on work of previous organizers like Dorothy Lee Bolden in Atlanta in the 60s, who founded the National Domestic Workers Union of America. Which was like an entirely black women led domestic workers union. It wasn't recognized by the formal labor union structure. It was an organization run by and for the workers. And they built up a membership of about 10,000 people at its height. They helped professionalize domestic work. They got higher wages, they won respect. And you can see just that sort of independent, okay, if no one else wants to help us, we'll do it ourselves spirit happening throughout history and is manifesting right now too. Over the last 30 years or so, union membership has dropped and there did seem to be sort of less interest, I suppose, in unions. But that there does seem to be a resurgence now. How do you explain it? I mean, there are a lot of factors that are kind of 
working against the working class in general, and especially the past couple of years, whether we're talking about the pandemic and the idea of essential work that, of course, workers have always been essential and the labor of workers who have been invisibilized or disenfranchised has kept the world running. But that became very blatant earlier on in the pandemic. We had a brief window of people acknowledging those workers and paying them a little bit more, showing more respect. And then that went away and those workers still went to work. I think it sort of reshaped the way that a lot of folks see the value of their lives and their labor. And throughout the past year or so, we've seen these bigger strikes. We've seen these big ambitious union campaigns. We've seen people pushing back against the powers that be that grind us down, keep their boots on our neck. I don't think you can put lightning back in a bottle the way that we're going right now. Public support for unions is at a record high. A younger, multiracial, multigender working class movement of new organizers is sweeping the country. I don't. You know, labor's been on the back foot for pretty much as long as I've been alive. The numbers still aren't great. We still have a long way to go to reclaim some of the density we used to have. But this is a really historic moment. And it's a moment that really fills me with so much optimism because, you know, we needed a win. The working class really needed a break. And right now it feels like we're actually building towards something really powerful. Whenever I talk to journalists who have a particular area of expertise, I'm always fascinated about what drew them there. What drew you to, to labor, workers' rights, and those sorts of issues? Sure. I mean, I spent most of my life in the music business. And really, it, it's very simple. The way that I shifted my focus, I helped unionize my workplace. Back when I was the heavy metal editor at Vice, we organized in, I think, 2015. And I dove in, got super excited, super involved. I got to know the organizers. I read more about labor law. I helped bargain contracts. I really just soaked in every bit of the experience. And at that point, I was freelancing already. And I decided to start writing a little bit about labor because that's where my head was at. And I just kind of kept doing it. Teen Vogue gave me a column. I started building up more clips. I found that I was going to way more union meetings than I was heavy metal shows. And so by the time I got laid off in 2019, because such is the way of digital media, I decided to just go for it and try and be a labor reporter for real. And about a year later, I signed the contract for this book. So I guess it was a good gamble. Well, and it's, I mean, you're relatively new to the topic. I mean, considering some people, you know, this is something that they know that they've wanted to do since they were kids. What what surprised you in putting this book together and in doing the research and the reporting out of all of this? Were there things that surprised you about the labor movement or the history of it? Yes, my favorite, I mean, I love all my chapters, but my favorite <laughs> chapter to really dig into, I think it's chapter 11, the disabled workers. And that was something that was really personal to me like as a disabled person in the labor movement. And as someone who I'd always known there must be some overlap there, but I hadn't seen it presented that way. I think that there's this sort of impulse to silo the disability rights movement and the labor movement and act like they're separate entities, but they've always been intertwined. And there's an example in that chapter that really hammered that home for me in a really satisfying way. Uh, in 1977, the Section 504 protests, when a group of disabled activists basically occupied a bunch of federal buildings in an effort to make the government uh, actually enact some regulations it was saying it was it was going to to help disabled workers. And in San Francisco specifically, they held it down for 26 days. And they were able to last that long because the Black Panthers fed them. Local church groups came out to support them. When some of those leaders went out to DC to talk to Congress, the Machinist Union showed up with a truck to help trans like transport people. Because that was before public transportation was accessible. A lot of those activists used wheelchairs. And I just loved seeing that very material, very obvious 
intersection between all these movements that are so connected and all those people that are really fighting the same fight on different fronts. And that was that was really inspiring to me. And I hope people will read that section, just kind of realize how connected we really all are. And despite those connections though, despite you know various groups coming together and providing support so that people can organize, you still run into some people, whether it's you know in factories or offices or whatnot, who say, you know what, I, I'd like to get you know better rights. I'd like to be part of this, but I'm just I'm just fearful. I'm afraid that I'll be seen as rocking the boat, that I won't be seen as the kind of employee who has a has a future. Um, what do you say to people like that? And I mean, it's scary. You know, it is scary to rock the boat. It's scary to stick your neck out. And the one thing I can say to folks like that is to remember, you're not alone. Talking to your coworkers, organizing in your workplace, making sure that you've got a bunch of people that have your back. That's how you feel powerful. That's how you protect yourself. And honestly, we I think a lot of folks in this country don't know that we have the legal right to unionize. We have the legal right to talk about our pay and to organize with our coworkers. Like we're allowed, even if your boss makes it feel like it's something that you shouldn't be able to get away with. Like. We do have some laws that will protect you. And I think it's really just emphasizing to folks that you're not alone. You don't have to be alone. One person has a really hard time standing up against the capitalist system on their own. But 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, that's how you make some noise. That's how you move some mountains. And it all starts with just talking to the person working next to you. One of the first stories that stood out to me about sort of labor and, and workers' rights has to do with when I was a when I was a kid, and this is my sort of first exposure to it. Was I think there was a movie or some sort of series about the Triangle Shirt Factory fire, um, and you know several you know many many women got killed, and there are images on the series of people having to jump off this burning building, and so for me at least this was sort of a standout seminal event in terms of organizing and trying to make sure that people don't lock the doors on, on a factory. In terms of sort of the overall arch of history, though, does it is it really that big, or is it just because of how Hollywood jumped into this? Well, that one was a really impactful moment, and a part of that was because it happened in the middle of New York City. There were news people taking photos. It was predominantly a young immigrant woman, like Eastern European, Jewish, and Italian women were the workforce, as well as children as young as 14, and just those images of women with their long hair flowing diving out of a burning building like that shook people. And that honestly did have an impact because a young woman named Frances Perkins was there that day and she witnessed what was happening and she had a very long career. But the most impactful moment, like well, the most impactful thing to mention here is that she went on to become the Secretary of Labor. And she was a major architect behind the New Deal and Social Security and all of those worker protections that were part of that package. That's because of her and that's because she was there and she saw those burning bodies she, and she heard those workers scream. Like it's a very visceral piece of history, but we're still feeling the after effects now positively thanks to that legislation that was laid down and negatively because workers today are still dealing with some of those issues. Garment workers in Los Angeles are still being trapped in these factories full of dust and poor ventilation and rats. Like. We have come so far, but there is so much further we still need to go. Mm. Uh, the book is Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. And there it is. Um, Kim Kelly is the author. It is a terrific read. It's gotten great reviews. It's off to an amazing start. And what a wonderful topic. Kim, thanks so much for, for joining us on the conversation. We appreciate it. And, and good luck to you as you bring the book to people all across the United States and help tell the story, the history of labor, and also where it's going in the future. Thank you so much. The future is ours to win. 
indeed. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Craig Lowry, Gina Kim, and the entire gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.